0: more away I think. Up
1: up and away.
0: Slightly different one today. Quite. Actually they've all been slightly different. Lately. Maybe it's the moving. So we've moved.
1: Transition.
0: Um, We're now in a new location.
1: Officially.
0: So hopefully our recording will become a bit less erratic and sound more relaxed and calm, but maybe not.
1: Well, who knows? It's like I said, we're still in transition, even though we've officially done the move now. We're not quite out of the woods. Um
0: <laughs> 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 or the forest.
1: Yep. Um there's still lots to do and so on. Um so it might still be a little bit until things really settle down and we get into a groove. But we- we're well on our way
0: we do have some exciting projects coming in the new year as well which will probably drive some content so definitely some trail building and riding with a few different groups of people and possibly some bike news but that needs to wait for a few weeks i another think
1: another cliffhanger yeah. <laughs> jamie's dangling the carrots
0: But we have some exciting stuff coming up, which isn't just about us riding new places and mushrooms. There's some interesting things coming along.
1: Yeah, not just all revolving around us.
0: (laughs) We were thinking that today, I mean, originally it would have been a good thought to say, if you're the new forager, what Christmas gifts could you get? But as we're a week to go before Christmas, maybe cutting it a bit fine on the old what-do-you-buy-a-mushroom-hunter-for-Christmas.
1: Well, we did have an excellent solution to that, which we'll maybe share another time. Yeah.
0: If you're new to this mushroom hunting lark, what would you like Father Christmas to leave in your Christmas stocking to help you get on your way? What would be a good gift?
1: Well, I was going to say it all depends on what the hunter has and doesn't have.
0: Well, for the hunter who has everything.
1: For the hunter who has everything. Okay. That is a good question that I don't know the answer to. I know a secret book of new locations that would be what I would wish for
0: I think you could get some mushroom art
1: that's always a good one there's a never have enough mushroom art articles
0: there's a shop in Montreal which we've mentioned before but I'll put a link in the description Um, if your mushroom hunter is constantly looking for something like morale's (laughs) uh why not get them a framed morel to put on the wall so that they can constantly look at it and go damn it i've never found one of those (laughs) and if you're a beginner i think there's quite a few things you might require
1: yes for sure there's always guidebooks and paraphernalia like knives or um... bug (laughs) spray oh that's a good one too actually even a homemade jobber would be nice um but yeah, good one on the bug spray, a bug net suit.
0: Bug jacket, yeah. Bug okay, hat. We could
1: go on and on here.
0: Everything anti-bug. I did hear the other day that if you don't eat sugar, mosquitoes don't go for you. Oh, really? Mm.
1: Well, they're never going to not go for me then. No, and I
0: was wondering. I might experiment a bit next year, just see if that actually works or if it's a myth.
1: Well, who's going to eat ice cream cones with me? <laughs>
0: But maybe I won't eat them for two days before we go and then just eat ice cream cones afterwards. I need to think about it, but um
1: I do not need to think about it
0: having been somebody that gets bitten a lot i would I would almost do anything not to be bitten because it's quite unpleasant.
1: It does really harsh the mellow of the experience
0: yeah, and you look like some kind of uh <laughs> itchy person when you you know when they start to itch the day after. Anyway, we're going to get into this now. So, our thought today was to talk about how do you start looking for mushrooms?
1: Yeah, and a basic intro to mushrooms. If you have never hunted them before or know very, very little, I mean, kind of like myself. But I guess another way to put it would be just thinking back to how did we start?
0: Yeah, so I think if you woke up this morning and thought, you know what I'm going to do on Christmas Eve? <laughs> no. I'm not going to go to the supermarket and buy mushrooms. I'm going to go and find my own in the woods. And Excellent. what do I need to go and do that? How do I start? What yeah, do I what do, do, I do I need to know? Do I just go and find the first mushroom I find and fry it just up? It. Or do I <laughs> be a bit more scientific about it and see how I'm going to do this? I guess that's what I was angling it
1: yes i think that is a very good way to put it so i was revisiting a little bit of my beginning mushroom knowledge and a few little fun facts for you that mushrooms are not plants Um, unlike plants they do not use sunlight to photosynthesize their food mushrooms are actually more like an animal they use enzymes to break down what they consume. And I just, I thought this was, those were pretty cool little facts and also just how important mushrooms are and how like magical actually their role is in nature as decomposers. So basically they break down all the dead and dying stuff and turn it into soil for new growth. So If you needed a little extra push on the cool factor of mushrooms to hop to it and get out there, um, that's enough for
0: me. And that doesn't necessarily mean they just break down plant matter either, do they? It's any living matter, actually. Well, it's obviously dead when they're breaking it down. But I think, you know, like animal carcasses, pretty much anything they will
1: decompose.
0: Decompose, yeah. That
1: thing, that stuff staggering amount of diversity and number of species exactly the question of it's hard to know where do you start there is just such a huge world out there the more that i've read and the more that i've looked at and the more that i've studied equals the more that i notice when i'm in the woods a few things to note just on the very starting point is are some factors such as season. You know, what time of the year is it? What month of the year is it? Uh, what is the weather doing? Uh, you know, has it rained lately? Has it been dry for a number of days? Uh, what is the temperature? Then you also want to, this is actually a pretty big category, is the environment or the habitat. Where is the mushroom growing? this is an area where i want to do a lot more learning is identifying my my trees so you know you're definitely going to want to look at what types of trees are nearby what type of terrain are you venturing into what other plants are are in the vicinity and then precisely where is the mushroom growing from? Is it growing from the soil? Is it growing from the base of a tree? Or is it growing off of a decomposing log? Um, So there's basically three different categories or types here. You've got a saprobe mushroom. And that one gets nutrients from dead and decaying matter. Then you have parasites, the, these types of mushrooms attack living plants. And then you have mycorrhizas, and they have a symbiotic relationship with trees, and they're generally growing from the soil. That was just a few uh, little fun facts on
0: different types.
1: That was to do with environment and habitat. So there are a variety of characteristics in each of these mushroom species. And this is where I've learned a lot um, is, you know, what, what am I looking for? And this is what we call the key identifying features. And some could be tactile, some could be sensory, and it's all going to depend on stage of growth so I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, how how do you look at a mushroom? Let's break that down. So I've kind of thought of it as like the anatomy, basically. The parts of a mushroom. What are we talking about here? And I'll, I'm going to talk about three, three main parts. The cap, the stem, and what's under the cap. And, um... Maybe just mention or get into some more detail of each of these main parts. So when we look at the cap, uh, we're looking for a number of features. So we can look at the shape, the color, the size, the texture. So within the shape of the cap, You could look for features such as, is it spherical? Is it bell-shaped? Is it conical or knobbed? Cylindrical? Rounded? Convex? Is it flat? Depressed? Or funnel and vase or vase-like? Another category within the cap would be its texture and probably the best way to, uh, you can always touch it. You might want to touch it to feel for some of these things. Yeah don't then touch your eyeballs and your mouth directly after. Um, we're quite we've mentioned a number of times how mindful of that we are based on past experiences. <laughs> so within te- like different ways to describe the texture of a cap could be looking for is it does it look patchy or is it shaggy or scaly? Is it just full-on smooth or is it dry or velvety? or slimy. And those are the ones that you might need to touch it um, to actually feel for. Now you're going to want to also look at the edges of the cap. Are they smooth? They could be irregular or wavy. It could be scalloped. Um, Sometimes they could be turned upwards. Sometimes they could be ribbed or striated. And I've never really gotten too into this but um, you know other features could be if you're looking very closely do they have any fine hairs or veil fragments Um, also then you want to look at well what color is the cap and is it a uniform color it could be mottled or streaky it could have faint uh, stripes bands or rings It could be fading. And another thing about the color is that um, they can often change after they are picked or cut or bruised. We've come across a number of mushrooms that uh, will like wildly change colour after being cut or...
0: Or do something, like, you know, the lobsters when they suddenly go all white because they kick out so many spores after you've picked them, especially if you put them together in a bag or a box, you know.
1: Yeah, for sure. I was also thinking of the saffron milk caps. How quite kind of bluish greenish brown they go how
0: unappetizing they look yeah
1: it's true they go from a lovely shade of orange to a not so nice shade after they've been cut and bruised and banged around in our in our riding bag which we'll also touch on in a bit um And then any other additional notes, uh, such as smell or odour, you know, were they growing in a cluster or singularly? Um,
0: I think we sometimes, or you sometimes, will look at the time of year and either look back on what we've found previously, or just look at what is being found in the region of Ontario we're in, based on something like Seek, for example, and see what we should at least be keeping an eye out for which I find helpful because if I'm already riding if I know I'm looking for lobsters or oysters or something specific well one is oysters can be in trees so I look up more but I think generally we go out with a clue of what we're looking for so we're not just starting from scratch, right? It helps me anyway get my eye in like a no will be the thing in sort of January, February. I'll know in the back of my mind that's what I'm looking for.
1: To put some of these features into practice, you know, are you looking for bright orange? Or are you looking for a cluster? Or as Jamie just said, are you looking up or are you looking down? It's really been a lot of information to take in and then sort of like a process of elimination. Yeah. In a way.
0: Yeah, because there's the thing about what you can eat, one thing. There's the thing about what you can't eat, which will be unpleasant or kill you. So that's fairly (laughs) serious. But then you roll into... You might actually be able to eat something, but you might not like it. Like, we're not a massive fan of puffballs, for example. Um, But you see them, and it's almost, for me, I see them and I'm like, oh, maybe this time it'll be different. (laughs) I should pick it. But the point i'm making is even some of the edible ones we might be like nah, don't not So, for example slippery jacks is one that we've collected before they taste okay enough but there are a lot of work to peel the lime off and prepare them and get all the bugs off of them and and if that's all there is then we would go for that but if we were out looking and we see slippery jacks and then we also happen to see a big cluster of oysters we would definitely go for the oysters because we know we like them. They last a long time in the fridge. They're relatively easy to prepare. So just my opinion, but that kind of is what I think.
1: I think... I agree, absolutely. But I'll also thicken the plot and throw this out there too, that as we continue to learn that some things might be worth revisiting again, such as the example of the Slippery Jacks. (laughs) Well, um... When we first were collecting them and giving them a go, i.e. consuming them, I didn't know that they are great to for dehydrating and potentially even, you know, taste better after rehydrating after being dehydrated. So the point that I'm trying to make is it's a lot of information all at once and it's been a slow, slow go to learn and we keep learning more and more so... Some things also might be worth revisiting and circling back to and trying a different way.
0: Yeah, I would agree.
1: Um, Because I'm sure that we know more now than we knew at the time, and we don't know everything. Far from it is what I'm getting at. (laughs) Just trying to a little bit share my experience of this this journey that we've been on.
0: Yeah, and I think what we have done is learnt to... We've basically learned these mushrooms one at a time, if that makes sense. Like, we've gone out, we found oysters. They're really difficult to mess up. We took them back. We did the spore print, which I'll talk about in a bit more detail. You know, we did research on a computer app location. Then we looked in the books. Then we looked in another book. Um, And we've done that with every edible species we've really kind of taken our time to learn about the one that we find which means then the next time we find them we're not second guessing because we know all oysters are edible for example so if it's an oyster we still will do a spore print and we still take a picture and identify it but the reality is is it it almost doesn't matter which one it is because in where we are in north america you're going to be able to eat it anyway so um yeah, I think just learning them one at a time, and as Jessica said before, being prepared to say I don't really know, I'm going to give that one a miss, you know, and throw it away, which can be difficult, but <laughs> you know we're still here, so that's probably a sensible move.
1: Yep, always caution first. Uh, so moving on with the anatomy here, shall I? You carry on. <laughs> um, we're going to move on to the stem, or as I learned, I think, just this summer. I believe it's also called the stipe, if you want a more fancy term i it
0: a stalk, but that's obviously not And there's right. a
1: stalk. For the stem, there are a number of different factors, such as the color, texture, shape, height and diameter. On the shape, again, we'd be looking at the length and the thickness, and so is the stem, is it even? Uh, like an even width all the way up and down, is it straight? does it taper? sometimes they could be described as club shaped or having a bulbous base uh when you pluck the mushroom out of the ground as opposed to cutting it, are there any roots present and then also when you turn it over and look look to see where the stem where and how the stem is attached is it Is it in the center? Is it off-center? Then also, there's a number of features on the stem that can give you some clues. So for the texture, is it smooth? Is it completely featureless? They could sometimes be a bit velvety or fuzzy. It could be scaly, ridged or grooved. It could have a pattern or... And actually, there was one mushroom I was thinking of with the pattern. That was the um,
0: oh yeah, that whole expedition.
1: (laughs) Like the morel, the one and only porcini that I found this summer. Uh, That was a good example of a patterned or reticulated web-like pattern on the stalk. That was a that was unusual. Yeah, that was one of the um, biggest or most. Deciding most key identifying features of that mushroom for me to differentiate it from others yeah because there's I mean, a lot of beliefs out there
0: and that's a classic where you spend a lot of time researching it looking at it learning it looking on the internet reading in the books you know
1: and even after the spore print still skeptical but yeah. it, I do recall on that mushroom it was the texture of the stem that was the Final, the kicker yeah the kicker. Also, we sometimes look, is there a ring or a partial veil on the stem? So if you were to actually, you could do a little experiment with a supermarket button mushroom, you can, if you look closely, you can usually still see a partial veil on the stem. So As the mushroom grows, the cap expands and it tears the veil. And on a classic or white button mushroom from the supermarket, you can practice looking for a partial veil.
0: And actually, I'd not thought about this, but that would be a good mushroom to practice the spore print on.
1: Excellent, absolutely. So
0: if you start to get into identifying mushrooms, then one of the ways to help confirm is a spore print. A supermarket mushroom would be a really good mushroom to practice spore prints on.
1: In fact, it would be a great mushroom to look at all of these parts of anatomy on.
0: And you know what it is, so it isn't going to kill you.
1: Yeah, you can use it as a real live specimen. Yeah,
0: that's a good move actually.
1: Yeah, rather than just using photographs uh, from books or the internet, you you can practice for real.
0: Yeah, for truth for truth
1: okay so now we're going to move on to or move back up to the cap but the underside of the cap which is probably where the most important features uh are found so again there's a variety of categories here does the mushroom cap have gills does it have pores or does it have teeth and there could also be other um but the most common that you're going to come across, I would say, would be gills, pores, and or teeth. Um, and actually, I was reading that the gills, we're going to talk about gills first, and they grow like the spokes on a wheel. And it made me think of a bicycle and just how well those two things go together.
0: So you can't get away from it.
1: I know, you just can't. And I think we're going to touch back on that Um as well yeah gills we're talking about gills so i learned early on that how do the gills attach to the stem was a key clue so there's three different three basic ways you can have attached gills which is exactly what it sounds like the gills are attached to the stem you could have decurrent gills which the gills are attached and run down the stem slightly. Or you can have free gills, which stop. The gills stop just before the stem. And if you are looking at it from above, you can see there's almost like a little track around the stem. And if it's difficult to see in some like very bell-shaped mushrooms, like, say, a shaggy mane, if you were to slice the mushroom vertically in half, then you could really see... If the gills are free or not. So other terminology uh, and factors in the the land of gills, gilled mushrooms, are the spacing of these gills. Are they tightly spaced, loosely spaced, crowded, moderate, or widely spaced? And then other features could be are the gills straight? Are they wavy or are they jagged? And or do they look more like veins or ridges and this is actually not a true gill these are called folds and a classic variety of that or a classic example of that would be chanterelles yeah they are not a true they are not a gilled mushroom they have folds so uh I'm gonna move on to pores, and a great example of species in the family of pores are Belites. They have a sponge-like layer of very tiny tubes, and this is where the spore print, the spores get released. So these little pores can be tiny and fine. They could be large and coarse, And they could also be different shapes. They could be rounded or angular or hexagonal and they could be many different colors. Another type or another category would be teeth and just to give an example of species with teeth would be lion's mane or hedgehog mushrooms. So these are more like spine-like or icicle-like dangling teeth and they're Kind of enough said on that they 're quite unique,
0: I think they look like coral i've always thought there's a theory with nature that things repeat in different environments, and i've always thought you know certainly the type of lions I mane we often find if you saw it under the sea facing the other way up, it would just look like a coral piece of coral
1: precisely, but i 'll tell you a reason why I did not use coral in the Cause
0: des- <laughs>
1: in the um, describing factors for the teeth is because there's a whole other category of mushrooms or of fungi that are coral and club fungi.
0: Right.
1: Um so I just didn't want to confuse, but you are absolutely correct that if you turned it the other way around, it does look like coral under the sea. So all of this business of under the cap or under the bonnet uh, this is where the spores are released from the mushrooms. Yep. And Jamie's going to talk about the... He's our spore print master.
0: So when we started, and this was all quite overwhelming, despite looking at many books, we have the Pearson mushroom book for North America, the, G- the field guide, which is supposed to be the best one. But to be honest, it, it wasn't great. And we then got from the shop in Montreal I mentioned... A simple guide to common mushrooms and it's mushrooms of the northeast so northeast america and then we use one of the uh telephone applications as well uh, which is a mushroom identifier which is i would say 80 percent of the time is probably fairly accurate but even then some of the mushrooms we found because we're beginners or because we just weren't sure and actually We went on a uh, mushroom society foray a couple of years ago and even the supposed experts were like, oh I don't know what that is or that could be that, um, which was a bit of a shock to me because I assumed they'd all know everything by sight. By doing more research we realised that if you do a spore print and if the spore print matches, In most cases that's a conclusive way of identifying the mushroom and when I first started doing the spore prints I put them under a glass which is what it said and put them on white paper the problem with that is is if the mushroom is damp which they often are the paper goes soggy and then when you take the mushroom off and the glass away you have to wait for the paper to dry to see what the colour of the spore print is However, somebody on YouTube was talking about this and they use silver cooking foil, so tin foil. And same thing, you take the mushroom, if it's got a stem on it, you snap the stem off, you put it gills side down, and then you put a glass or a bowl over it because you want to create an airtight environment, like a vacuum, so that the mushroom, then the spores weep out of the mushroom onto the piece of tinfoil and then you after it can be as quick as an hour but if you want to really 100% then four or five hours or overnight you remove the glass take the mushroom off and then you will have or should have a spore print if it's damp let it dry and then you'll see the colour and some of them are actually quite I've actually got some in a notebook that we did which you know are different colours and they've left a perfect print of the mushroom, the underside of the mushroom. So the store bought supermarket mushrooms we were talking about. If you put one of those in a piece of tinfoil or plain white paper you'll get like a grey brown perfect imprint of the gills underneath.
1: It's like a fingerprint.
0: A little bit, yeah. Um so that's what we do. We often have many of them and we'll often have big mushrooms so we'll use Pyrex bowls but pretty much every species regardless we will spore print unless it's something like a pheasant back that we're 100% sure on or an oyster as I mentioned before or lobster
1: even oysters though because there's so many different kinds yeah we sometimes often.
0: we'll do it just to see the only thing is is I've run into with this and we had this when we were looking for and I don't even remember what it was we were looking Blewett? for yeah blew it, so we. We tried to learn them this year. We blew it on the blue The spore print was inconsistent because it would say creamy white or yellowy cream or whitey, whitish pink. And the problem is, is you have this kind of like willingness to identify it. So you end up looking at it going, because it's creamy, browny, white. You end up going, well, I think that has a pink hue.
1: It must have that. <laughs> that so that it would be me in the background.
0: Be 100% sure of the colour of the spore print generally it's pretty clear what they are and generally it's not let us down so far so to be
1: fair on that particular mushroom the one that just the one feature or factor that just did not add up was the odor
0: yeah so
1: again just to say all of these factors play into the conclusion
0: yeah the odor was compost heap odor you know like if you've done grass cuttings all through the summer and then it rains and then you lift the lid off the compost bin that's what they smell like it was bizarre, actually. So, shall we press on then? So,
1: how mountain biking and mushroom hunting have collided.
0: I had a couple of things, actually, but I one thing I was going to say is that, before I get into that, is one of the reasons why we talk about foraging more generally is because if you are out in the woods, even if you're out a few times a week... It can be disappointing to go out and find nothing and yeah. sometimes you'll go out and you won't even see a mushroom or any that you see are old and decaying. So that's why we generally got into more general foraging. and um, I mean, Jessica already was as, as I was, but things like nettles and things that are easy to identify. But I mean, that's why we've been spending a bit more time learning other stuff because it... Means when you are out any time of the year, you are more than likely going to find something to at least experiment with, I would say.
1: Well, and not to make it sound like that's the o- only reason, we are just generally interested. And as our sweet friend Doris would say, there's a whole pharmacy out there. That's true. So, and not that... just because there's in the shoulder seasons of mushrooms or when we're unlucky... um I think, you know, there's just so much that can be learned about and found and eaten uh, and help with our health out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, and that kind of leads me into the mountain biking thing. So, if we were, I mean, I speak for me probably more, but if the journey on this was, you know, I was into collecting mushrooms and looking for wild edibles and I used mountain biking as a way to go and look for those things Mm -hmm. that would be one thing and my riding would be sedate and calm and quiet and not looking for anything interesting apart from what we saw but I've come at it from a very different end so I've come at it from racing and riding down mountains but I've always been interested in the environment that I've ridden in. So it's kind of been a natural progression to, as I said, collect nettles for tea and heather flowers for tea and normally at the end of the day or if there's a long stop. But we both were interested in mushrooms and as we've been riding in lots of new places for this podcast, but also I was trying to do something else this year, as in I was trying to ride a number of different trails... We've basically progressed and just ended up trying to find a balance, which is tricky. Um, It can be. So I, this year, was trying to ride at least 500 different trails from start to finish, which put a bit of time pressure on the riding. And then on top of that, Jessica had her accident at the start of the summer. So it's basically meant that the riding has been a bit more sedate. And if you are going out for a ride for fitness and to progress your riding, to then keep stopping every five minutes looking for mushrooms <laughs> can be quite frustrating. And personally, I need a bit of time to get into riding, especially if it's technical. So if it's rocky or rooty and wet and slippery, I can't, I don't do well if I keep stopping because I end up losing focus. So we've kind of got a half balance going i think we i mean if we see no mushrooms for three rides then we go somewhere there's lots of mushrooms we're going to stop fairly often i would say the trick is to try and plan places where there is some general riding and there is some more technical riding I would say give yourself enough time so that you can ride and then if you do find a big stash of mushrooms you can always hide them and go back and get them or just go back and get them, you know, when you finish go back to whatever. Ride a different trail to get there. I personally, if I'm riding on my own, only look for mushrooms when I'm riding uphill or if it's flat green trails. If it's anything technical I've stopped looking because I it ruins my ride. I either crash end up going really slowly and they end up not doing anything well and the last few times I've ridden the looking for mushrooms on the way uphill actually works pretty well I'm getting pretty good at because there's nothing to do riding uphill apart from feel sorry for yourself so you may as well use the time (laughs) to look for mushrooms yeah and then the other thing I would say is if it's somewhere where it's not a big day out so if it's somewhere where you're just riding laps of different trails then it really isn't that difficult to You know, ride. Keep an eye out. Go back and pick them. And you know, the end of your ride, or like I said, hide them. Mark a pin. It it's definitely a compromise. But I would say the compromise for me is if I didn't ride, I wouldn't go to these places and wouldn't find the things in the first place. And the riding for me is something I kind of need to do. And yeah, it's just a bit of a compromise sometimes, I guess
1: it is and also you know just accepting what is that some days you you go out and we always say let's go see what we see because we can't always control what we're going to see no matter how, how hard we're looking or not looking it's you just you get what you get and you don't <laughs> get upset um it's have, easier said than done sometimes but
0: having ridden for years like literally I mean the one thing I would say is that if we've ridden, you know, we ride most weekends, sometimes twice, even three times in a week. I just realized, sat here saying this, that I, we don't have mechanical failures very often. Like when I was used to ride, you know, like early 2000s, I would say one ride in three or four would be ruined by somebody having something like a chain snap or so Something mechanically would break, and I've just kind of realised how robust those bikes are. I mean, some of them creak and squeak a bit, or the suspension needs a bit of attention, or the dropper post doesn't work. But but it's really unusual for us to be like we're not riding, we're going home because we've broken something.
1: I was going to say the last snap we had was my old Achilles, (laughs) (laughs) and hey, that's been a while now.
0: (laughs) And then the other thing which we sort of touched on is going looking for mushrooms is one thing. So. You know what you need to do that Jessica can sort of talk about in a minute but from a riding point of view it's difficult again because we had somebody ask what foldable bag can you take riding like I if I ride on my own in the evening I don't take anything generally uh, my phone normally because i know where i'm riding and it's you know a short walk back to the car I'd rather not wear a backpack if it's somewhere new or it's a bit longer i will take a backpack but i have a back protector in my backpack so there's not loads of rooms for mushrooms so what i will take is a small knife and some paper bags and i will my preference is to if i'm on my own note where they are finish my ride go and get them or Stash them somewhere and then go and get them later. But Jessica's got a slightly different setup to me. She rides really? with a bigger backpack.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it seems always that the way that it goes is generally if we don't take a backpack, then we often find the mother load, and when we do take a backpack and are prepared with all of the paraphernalia, we find nothing so again it's just the way that it goes but I did want to acknowledge the the one listener that asked the question about the fold-up bag or what type of bags do we use because that's a very good question and I did give some serious thought to you know we did try a number of fold-up bags um, a little backpack that you kind of just has strings and it's more like a sack um you know our own riding backpacks where there's not a great amount of space in them and you know or like attaching those fold-up bags outside the backpack and um You know, there's just no way to attach them onto your bike. They just jump and jostle around so much, even as well on your back. So I think really the only conclusion I've come to is I generally try and have a good handful of paper bags in my backpack. And if I'm finding multiple mushrooms or varieties of mushrooms is... I do my best to use the paper bags, or even just pieces of paper, and kind of tuck them in. It's the only way to... Because any other way, they jump and jostle around and somersault in there, and if there's any dirt or debris on them, they just all roll around in it, and it's a bit of a nightmare, or they or they get damaged, because some of them are, you know, so delicate and not as robust as, say, a pheasant back. Um, so, paper is kind of, is my solution, or the best solution that I've been able to come up with thus far. And that is both for carrying them in within a bag or backpack, and but also for kind of tucking, tucking them in and securing them. And then other things that I will often have in my bag are, of course, my mushroom knife. And my new mushroom knife has a brush on one end, but prior to that, a toothbrush is a mighty good good tool. And depending on, again, what else we're foraging or collecting, sometimes a small container. So, you know, say we were picking Saskatoon berries or um, spruce tips, I might go for a container over a paper bag. Um, but that's generally about it. Maybe
0: we'll get some branded paper bags at some point.
1: Yeah, or even a canvas. Something that's not plastic. You want them to be able to breathe. Breathable. Yes. The last thing I think I will mention as a beginner, and I didn't have this right from a beginner, but Jamie did, speaking of Christmas gifts, I believe he (laughs) gave this to me for Christmas two years ago, is a mushroom log book. And, whew, it's it can be
0: it's a piece of work.
1: tedious and time-consuming, but I think it's one of those things that I think your future self or future somebody would be seriously pleased with. Um, so it's it's quite great in all the questions or cues that it asks you to write down. Such as, you know, the date, the location, and even, you know, right down to GPS coordinates and a lot of the characteristics and identifying features that we spoke about. That was, you know, that gave me the language to then actually log some of these things. And, you know, I can look back on, you know, February last year. What did we find? We found wild enoki and a number of different identifying features such as the habitat and the weather that day and so pretty cool to look back on or you know say this february when we're hitting a dry spell we might go back to these coordinates and try this location
0: yeah i mean yeah we uh it's useful as well because sometimes you might find a spot somewhere which we did recently where there'd been chicken of the woods they weren't edible they were long decayed but at least we can then make a note of the location so that we know when chicken of the woods are in season we can cruise by and have a look and see if there's any there so
1: yeah it's a
0: useful reference tool i think
1: useful reference tool but i think more than anything a great beginning and learning tool
0: yeah Absolutely. Just
1: quite time-consuming. But the, you know what? Mushrooms are time-consuming. You must have patience <laughs> to forage mushrooms. And clean them. <laughs> yes, and cook them and all the things. Identifying, though, is the even more time-consuming than the cleaning often.
0: Absolutely. Okay, well, Merry Christmas. And on that note...
1: Until next time...
0: Get lost.